0: You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperdal. Year-on-year inflation keeps on slowing, the unemployment rate is low, and economic growth is strong. Does this mean a so-called soft landing is on the way? Our guest today will be Chris Lowe, Chief Economist with FHN Financial, who will share his views on the likelihood that inflation comes under control without the economy slipping into a recession. We'll also give a quick market update on what's driving financial markets now and what you should look out for in the weeks and months ahead. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Chris Lowe, Chief Economist with FHN Financial. But first, a quick market update. The Fed hiked 25 basis points this week, as expected. With no new economic or rate projections this meeting, the focus was on the wording of the FOMC statement and Chair Powell's press conference. Much to the frustration of market participants, the statement barely changed and there was very little new information in the press conference. Inflation is still in the driver's seat for Fed policy, especially with the tight labor market and strong economic growth. Speaking of which, the first release of second quarter GDP this week showed 2.4% annualized growth, above the consensus expectation and strong enough that the Fed can worry a bit less that monetary tightening so far is tipping the economy into a recession. The June PCE data showed core PCE inflation rose 0.2%, equally encouraging as the June CPI, but at the risk of sounding like a broken record, this is only one month of data. We've seen head fakes before and the Fed needs to see persistent improvement before any plan for rate cuts. Treasury yields have bounced back after a bond rally earlier this month. 10s pushed through 4% this week, and 2s are back above 4.9%. The market reaction to the FOMC and important data the second half of this week has been a little shaky so far. We think it will take until early next week for markets to settle down. Market expectations currently show about 50-50 odds for an additional rate hike sometime this year. Not entirely consistent with the Fed's last dot plot but still accepting the Fed's messaging that meetings in the future are live. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Chris Lowe. Our guest today is Chris Lowe, Chief Economist with FHN Financial. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure, Will. Thanks for having me.
0: Our topic today is the prospect of the economy achieving a soft landing. So, before we get into anything else, I just want to quickly define a soft landing as I see it. So, I would define a soft landing as the scenario where inflation comes down to the Fed's 2% year over year target without there being a recession. And sometimes people specifically point to uh, a meaningful uptick in the unemployment rate, though how big that uptick needs to be is a little open to interpretation. So, Chris, before we go into the discussion, any qualms or anything to add about that definition of a soft landing?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the goal, right, is to normalize inflation. That's the Fed's primary concern right now, as it is at the late stage of any cycle when they're tightening. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Effectively, if you can stabilize inflation without a recession, therefore allowing the expansion to continue, that's a soft landing.
0: As we record this, the the last batch of CPI inflation data we saw, which was for June, showed year-on-year inflation coming in at 3%, which is not 2%, but it's a a big slowdown from the peak of 9.1% last year. Supply chains are showing better balance. Energy prices are staying under control after all the potential risks from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And all the while, the employment rate is at only 3.6%, which is where it's been for a while. And we've had just about a year of positive economic growth. So it sounds like that is a textbook soft landing. Or if not, it's just a few months away. So what do you think is missing from that description of the economic landscape?
1: Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And especially just given what's happened to inflation in the last couple of months, right? The CPI was 4% even in, in May. 3% in June. At that rate, it'll be 2% in July. Why am I skeptical that we can get to 2% even uh, a, a year from now? Uh, the, the reason is that the rapid improvement in inflation we've seen in the last six months or so is primarily um, the, the end of the explosive inflationary impact of the first few months of Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, Inflation, of course, was was already running pretty hot before that war began. But specifically, in the first few months after the invasion, oil prices and uh, food commodity prices skyrocketed. They've been coming down since last June, but they have stabilized since December. And for that reason, those year-on-year inflation comparisons start getting more difficult. Uh, And in fact, they start getting more difficult as soon as the July report. So uh, let's just say, I guess, the the easy work is behind us. And what now becomes the more challenging work on inflation is is pulling down the cyclical uh, components things like rent, things like uh, uh, wage-heavy services that uh, are, are in part running hot because the economy is tight and labor's hard to find, and we've had a few years of solid income growth.
0: I think it's helpful to look at these stickier components of inflation, or the cyclical ones, as you call them, because That's the inflation that's left over once all the other imbalances in the economy, like rising energy prices or supply chain bottlenecks normalize. And to understand the stickier parts of inflation, it's helpful to specifically look at the labor market, because it is at the heart of how the Fed views inflation. The Fed really thinks that the strong labor market right now is reinforcing high inflation. And that's where they get this emphasis on what they call the super core, or services, prices, excluding energy and shelter. And for those who aren't totally familiar with the terminology, a good is something like your iPhone or a piece of furniture, and a service is something like your insurance salesman or your daycare provider. And the thinking is that the primary operating cost for service providers is the cost of labor, wages. And wages are not flexible. They're sticky. They don't change as quickly as the price for a gallon of gasoline or even consumer goods, where retailers can stick a discount sticker on the shelves when demand goes down or they order too much for the holiday season. So the supercore inflation means that wage increases are closely tied to the consumer prices for these categories. When the labor market is strong and employers are competing for scarce workers, this keeps wage pressures elevated and that gets passed on to consumer prices. Chris, do you agree with the Fed's understanding that underlying inflation can only come down if the super core meaningfully slows down?
1: I think it makes a certain amount of sense. Consider just one industry where there have been particular labor shortages, uh, restaurants. In restaurants, uh, we, we not only have seen rapid wage gains because companies are competing for scarce workers. But we've also seen really rapid inflation. It's it's one of the bigger contributors to the CPI in the past year. When you compare what it costs to eat out relative to cooking for yourself, inflation for food away from home has gone up a ton more than inflation for food at home. So there is some empirical evidence, even in just the last couple of years, that it makes sense to worry about wages. I I do think it is possible for inflation to come down anyway, but uh, I I also think it's really important to remember that when the Fed dismantles inflation, they they don't ignore all the other pieces, they are still watching them. And uh, Chair Powell gave a a speech last year where he talked about why they took uh, the PCE deflator apart and and drilled down to the super core, and it was because they have a pretty good sense for what the other pieces are going to do. Uh, One of the things I'm a little worried about is that not all of those other pieces are behaving as well as the Fed anticipated. Uh, Just to give one example, uh, goods prices, excluding food and energy, they figured would fall back on the long-term average, which is about zero. They don't rise in price, but in fact uh, they are still rising in price. In part because the whole world is decoupling from China, uh, they're they're moving their or diversifying their suppliers to other markets, and that's proving to be expensive, uh, keeping at least a little upward pressure on those goods prices.
0: I think that's a, that's a really good point, that the, uh, the reliance that the Fed has on its super core inflation, um, where, where you get to, to the center and, and things are tied to the strength of the labor market, it's under the assumption that food and energy and supply chain imbalances, that everything zeros out and improves. But of course, uh, if, if that doesn't happen, there's an upside risk. Um, I, I kind of want to push back on the other assumption, though, which is the connection to the labor market that the SuperCore has. Um, So, you know, this idea of services being primarily driven, uh, operating costs for for services being primarily driven by the cost of labor. Um, If you look at the components of things in the services category, I think the better title for it is not goods, uh, because it, it really just encompasses so many components um, that, that aren't all that similar. And so I'm just going to give some examples of, of how I think the wage, uh, the, the kind of idea that it is primarily wage driven is not as strong as the Fed is really leaning on. And I think this could show some uh, inflation improvement without um, necessarily causing the labor market to, to need, uh, you know, significant weakening. So the first example is airfares. So this is included in services. Um, But airfares, we've seen those prices fluctuate not because the wages of pilots or flight attendants, but it's more closely tied to jet fuel. Um, For car rental and auto repair, those prices went up earlier in the pandemic, not because the wages uh, of the repair people or the the person behind the car rental desk went up. It was because the semiconductor microchip shortage uh, caused a shortage of cars. Um, And so that, you know, you could see those prices being flowing downstream from the goods market instead of being driven by the wages. Um, And then something like internet services. Early on in the pandemic, we all needed to double our bandwidth because we're working from home and we were streaming videos and all of that. And these internet providers, they didn't double their workforce or they didn't double their wages. Uh, Instead, there was capital intensity where they could scale up Uh, without really causing an increase in prices. And so you kind of go through a lot of these components, and a lot of the services sector is driven by things that aren't the wages of its workers. And so I see that as a potential for if, if, if kind of the imbalances in the economy are able to equalize and come into harmony, it could bring those prices down without necessarily having uh, to sacrifice wage gains or unemployment? I think that's
1: true up to a point, absolutely. And, I mean, airlines are the best example. But, uh, you know, another thing to consider with an industry like the travel industry is is the demand side. And to a large extent, the money we have to spend on services like air uh, air travel, depends on um, on what our wages are doing, what people's income is doing. When you look at airline pricing, for example, when the airplanes are relatively empty, uh, it, pricing almost directly correlates to jet fuel prices. That is, airlines manage their prices against their cost basis. And as you said, their costs are dominated not by salaries but by fuel. Uh, on the other hand, when planes are overbooked, uh, when when the airports are packed, uh, then you very often see that uh, airfares will rise even when fuel costs go down. It becomes more of a supply demand relationship and the demand is very much driven Again, by, by income growth and wage growth. So I, I think in that sense, the, the Fed is is right, that uh, what makes wage pressure so insidious in the eyes of the Fed is not just that wages are a cost, but also that wages provide the wherewithal for consumers to tolerate price increases. Uh, if they don't have income growth and prices rise, eventually they're going to cut back and companies will find that their revenue actually drops when they raise prices because they start chasing customers away. But if if there's solid wage growth under spending, then it becomes easier to raise prices. And that's the other piece, of course, that the Fed focuses on.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense because of course, when the labor market is strong, and we're adding 20,0, 300,000 jobs a month, um, that is more labor income, just more money for people to spend on stuff. And of course, if that comes up against a supply side of the economy that can't keep up, prices will go up. But so, does the Fed then have too much of an emphasis on looking at the the micro side of it, looking at the wage-driven uh, or so-called wage-driven components of the CPI rather than just thinking, well, a strong labor market means uh, that there's an imbalance in the economy between supply and demand?
1: I think, frankly, at the Fed, uh, they're, they're open to thinking about all kinds of things because their inflation models just haven't worked very well for the last 30 or 40 years. So, uh, you know, the idea that the way they're looking at it, the way they think about it is perhaps too simplistic. Um, I, I don't think, even within the Fed, they would argue with that. Uh, of course, it is. And so, one of the things we have to bear in mind when we think about the possibility of a soft landing is uh, what if inflation does continue to slide? and uh, the unemployment rate stays low. Is the Fed going to continue to aggressively tighten? And I think the answer to that, we we saw late in the last cycle until, unfortunately, the pandemic ended the expansion. The Fed abandoned hiking rates, uh, even at, at a point where most of the Federal Open Market Committee thought further rate increases were necessary. And they did it because Inflation was low. And because even though the unemployment rate was lower than they thought sustainable, the economy was starting to stall. And they figured um, as long as inflation was low, it was best to avoid that stall. I think what makes a soft lending particularly difficult in the current environment is that as you started the podcast with, uh, inflation is not low. Inflation is still higher than the Fed's goal. That is a big difference between the current environment and what we had in 2019. It is much more difficult. In fact, I think many economists would argue impossible for the Fed to pull off a soft landing when inflation is running above its target.
0: I want to describe another scenario uh, that could lead to a soft landing. I want to hear your thoughts. Um, This idea, I I think, I've seen it described as uh, as rolling recessions. So certain sectors, certain industries, um, have corrections. Um, They they come back into better balance after you know this period of overheating the last couple of years. Uh, But they do it in a way and kind of uh, sequentially in a way so that there is not an economy wide recession. So I think we've seen two rate-sensitive sectors that have that can give an example of this, uh, and perhaps provide a path to a soft landing. So the first is uh, tech, where we saw huge growth, huge increase in employment when money was just you know free and uh, lots of investment in tech companies, and then when interest rates went up, we saw a big contraction, um, a bunch of layoffs, and then right now things have leveled off, and the tech industry more or less, as far as we can tell, has seen a correction without a huge collapse. The second industry then would be housing, where again, we saw a huge surge in sales and house prices earlier in the pandemic when money was very cheap and people wanted to uh, migrate somewhere for more space during the pandemic, maybe to work remotely or just have a, a, an investment in a second home. And then as interest rates went up, home sales cratered, and then as far as we can tell in the last few months, uh, perhaps through really the beginning of this year, um, things plateaued. And so the housing market had this correction without it breaking. And I, I kind of bring this up because I think if we see each sector come into balance, not at the same time, in my mind, it's possible to avoid a recession because uh, you know employment can be reallocated to uh, sectors that are, are having difficulty hiring. Um, there's not a huge collapse in consumer spending or sentiment that would cause investment to, to really decrease. And so as long as these sectors and industries are able to, uh, to, 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 harmonize, to come into better balance, not at the same time, could there be a possible path to a soft landing there?
1: You know, the, the first time I heard the term rolling recession was in the late 1980s. When uh, I started in, in economics, uh, it, it, it was kicked around again in the 90s and actually was a lot more appealing in the 90s as a possibility because it, it followed a, a true soft landing. We had a soft landing when the Fed tightened in 94, 95. It's one of uh, less than a handful in the last 40 or 50 years. But what tends to happen, in, uh, in, in in an economic cycle, even when things are going right and you have uh, these rolling corrections sector by sector, what tends to happen is that um, the Fed continues to tighten with the idea that they ought to normalize the rate of job growth to be equal to the rate of labor force growth. If there's a hundred to hundred and fifty thousand people entering the labor force on average every month, then that's the non-inflationary rate that uh, job growth can can well that can be allowed. What's tricky about that then is that economic growth is relatively close to zero. On average, it's it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two percent. But of course, every quarter differs, and some are going to be above that, some are going to be below. Just looking back at the last few years, we've had tremendous variability in the growth rate from quarter to quarter. And what happened in the late 90s, what happened again 10 years later or so when the next cycle ended, is that you're skating very close to that edge, and uh, there's a, a shock in the economy of one kind or another, and it is the shock that triggers the recession. But the economy is vulnerable to recession because it is operating at such a low level of growth. Once you tip over and growth goes from positive to negative, even if it is a shock, even if it is something that ought to wear off fairly quickly, what happens is that companies begin resizing their workforces. They let people go. And then it becomes self-reinforcing for a time. That's what causes the recession to become more widespread. And even those sectors that may have already corrected, they could very easily correct again. Um, I don't see anything right now in the data suggesting that a recession is imminent. In fact, the leading indicators look a lot clearer now uh, that there's less to worry about than there was six months ago. So I'm pretty optimistic about growth continuing for a time. But rolling recession is one of those things that um, we've seen the economy approaching one. We've seen rolling corrections before. But it always seems as if when economic growth is slow, there's some catalyst that comes along and transforms a rolling recession into a real one that's economy-wide.
0: I do agree that the the fundamental economic statistics right now are not pointing to a recession uh, anytime soon. Um, I, I will say in in your last forecast write-up, uh, which was in May, I won't hold you to it. You can um, correct anything I say here because uh, I'm sure there have been updates. Um, but your your main thinking was that A mild recession was going to happen instead of a soft landing because the Fed would engineer it. The Fed would need it uh, in order to uh, bring inflation down. And that's when their job is done, is when they restore price stability. But you did give a non-zero probability to a soft landing. So what do you think uh, are the needed conditions for this to actually happen, even if it's not the most likely scenario?
1: Well, as I said, it would be extraordinary if we could pull one off. Uh, because the Fed is still trying to uh, manage inflation lower than it is at the moment. So as long as their focus is on uh, keeping policy tight and causing growth to slow, uh, and in fact, based on all of the communication from the last Fed FOMC, uh, the the goal is, is to boost the unemployment rate. Um, soft landing, I think, is, is is a very low probability, but it is possible, and it's possible primarily if inflation stabilizes and the Fed abandons trying to push the unemployment rate higher. Uh, as I said, I, I don't think that's entirely far-fetched. Uh, it, it is consistent with the way the Fed has behaved in the past. Uh, I think it could happen again. But the first ingredient is absolutely necessary, and that is inflation has to come down to 2% or lower.
0: For the last couple of years, we've seen very few moments where market expectations seem to be in line with Fed communication, with economist consensus, all of that. Um, So right now, Uh, In the middle of July, as we record this, we we still see this divergence between the Fed's last dot plot in June um, and market expectations for for rates. Um, I think there is also then a a difference between market expectations and your forecast. So what do you think is then the most important message for investors the rest of this year uh, based on how you see the economy and rates playing out?
1: I think we're we're definitely in the end game in terms of tightening. That is, we're we're getting close to the peak level of interest rates. I don't think we're there yet. There is a majority on the Fed that believes rates have to go up. And what what is striking, as you pointed out, is the the market doesn't think rates will go up as much as. Uh, the majority of of, uh, Federal Open Market Committee participants think, which is pretty remarkable when you consider we're talking about a group of about a dozen people who are going to vote and actually choose where to set interest rates. They they don't necessarily consult with the market before making that choice. So I, I would think as an investor for a starting point, what the Fed says tends to be uh, more useful than what the market says about where the peak in interest rates is going to be. I, w- I would add to that, though, that uh, you can also look at the Fed's interest rate forecasts over time. How has their thinking evolved, and why has it evolved? And what what's most striking to me, looking back over the last two years, is that the Fed's sense of where the terminal rate would be, the peak level of the federal funds rate, uh, it it has increased in every single one of uh, the Fed's quarterly estimates, except the one at the meeting that just happened to be a week after those big bank collapses in uh, late March. But other than that one meeting, Uh, They've increased it every time. And the reason they increased it every time is that they went into the meeting and saw that the uh, financial response they expected from the tightening they'd done so far proved to be elusive. In, In other words, they hiked rates. They thought growth would slow by a certain amount. They thought unemployment would rise by a certain amount, and it didn't happen. And that was the story quarter after quarter for the last couple of years. So with that in mind, I think if anything, the risk is they'll tighten more than they're currently saying, because even now, the economy is re-accelerating. The unemployment rate is holding at 3.6%, which is is where it was in March when they started tightening. Their goal is 45 Uh, And GDP growth is, uh, you know, we're putting in a solid 2% performance in the first half, and it could end up being even better than that, particularly once all the revisions are in. Their uh, target at the beginning of this year was a little less than half a percent. So again, as long as the economy outperforms, given what they thought it would do in response to tightening, That tells me they're going to reach for more, not less.
0: Chris Lowe, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Will. It was a pleasure. That was Chris Lowe, Chief Economist with FHN Financial. I think a really interesting and important point about Chris's understanding of the relationship between inflation and the labor market right now is that the resilience of the economy so far to Fed tightening doesn't prove the likelihood of a soft landing like I think many market participants see it. Instead, that resilience means the Fed needs to work that much harder in order to bring inflation down to the longer term 2% target. Looking ahead, we'll see the July employment report on August 4th and the July CPI report on August 10th. We'll see one more of each monthly report before the Fed's September 20th decision. That leaves a lot of time and a lot of data for Fed officials to figure out their next step for rate policy and communicate it to markets. With markets not entirely convinced the Fed will hike one more time this year, and our expectation that at least one more hike is on the horizon, there's certainly upside risk to two-year Treasury yields the next few months. Tens should stay within their 3.5-4% to range we've seen since March bank tensions somewhat faded. In the meantime, big surprises to economic data and big public comments from Chair Powell are more than capable of causing 10 to 15 basis point intraday swings for coupon securities. As the end of the cycle comes closer, the important focus will shift to the terminal rate, how long the Fed holds rates there, and then how quickly they start cutting rates. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comprinol, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.